everyone, and welcome back to the latest edition of CouncilCast, the official podcast of the Council of Insurance Agents and Brokers. I'm Katie Oberkirker, content specialist on the Market Intelligence and Insights team here at the Council. Today, I'm joined by Scott Cinder, partner at Steptoe & Johnson and the chief legal officer for the Council. Scott is going to be unpacking association health plans. These plans are receiving a lot of renewed attention after the Trump administration implemented a regulation in June of 2018, focusing on these types of plans and the benefits that they may offer small businesses and self-employed individuals within the same industry or profession. Scott, thanks for being here with me today. It's great to be with you today, Katie. So the Trump administration in June finalized this rule and it throws the doors open for small businesses to join forces and set up health insurance plans. Were you surprised by any elements of the final rule? It's an aggressive rule. Um, And what I would say is I was somewhat surprised, we were somewhat surprised by its overall contours. Uh, They really are pushing the envelope in in every way they can to try to expand the availability of association health plans. I guess to the extent I was surprised by, and we can talk about the details as we move through, I guess to the extent I was surprised by anything, it's that they did not try to exercise their broader preemptive authority on the states to inhibit the state's ability to put up roadblocks to self-insured association health plans. And to your point, this rule was aggressive in a lot of ways, and in response to that, more than a dozen states have filed suit to overturn it. So the lawsuit argues that association health plan eligibility for working owners or self-employed individuals amounts to skirting of the individual market protections in the ACA. So it's putting consumers' health and financial security at risk. And many of the states have also issued or they're considering issuing conflicting legal guidance that restricts association health plan eligibility. Have you seen this? uncertain legal landscape cause a go-slow approach among insurance providers in the market? Yes, and let me unpack this a little bit because I think there's a lot you can you can cover on this question. So to answer your, your main question first, I think particularly in the insured market, uh, you're seeing carrier reluctant to engage and to offer coverage to association health plans. Um, which is problematic if you're seeking to offer this sort of coverage as an association health plan. Uh, The lawsuit actually, I think, has, you know, kind of three core complaints. And they all go to the Department of Labor's underlying authority under the ERISA provisions to to implement the rule that they have put into place. Um, You know, to talk about the working owners, they are allowing working owners who have no employees uh, so think about, you know, a, a self-employed lawyer, other professional, uh, any sort of person who has a standalone business where they have no employees, they will now be eligible to participate in an association health plan. And when they do so, as long as there are more than 50 individuals that participate in that plan, it will be treated as a large group uh, under the DOL rules, which means that they will be exempt from many of the ACA requirements that would otherwise apply to individuals purchasing health care. They do the similar thing for small businesses. They allow small businesses to aggregate in a trade association, 
and to uh, be treated as one big large business and again uh, avoid many of the otherwise applicable provisions of the ACA. The third issue is that the um, what an association is itself that's eligible for HP treatment. Historically, you've had to be a bona fide trade association that existed for reasons other than offering the health care coverage. Something like the council, where you serve a, a, a specific community of business interests. Uh, and essentially, DOL has obviously, they've obliterated that requirement and said you can aggregate into a trade association for the purposes of offering health care, provided that you have at least something else you're doing for those members but it can be secondary, and what it is is unspecified the rules. So those are the three basic challenges. Uh, and if you look at the challenges themselves, I think they kind of tick on several different arguments. One argument is that these three decisions that were made by DOL are not allowed under the ERISA statute itself, and that they go against 40 years of DOL interpretations. Uh, the second argument they make is that the aggregation into this large group it is at odds with the ACA requirements, which essentially say, if you read the complaint, and I think that the AGs are right on this, at least in what they assert, uh, the ACA says that when you are purchasing coverage through an employer, you're going to look at the size of the employer to determine whether you're in the small or large group market. They don't touch on AHPs or association health plans specifically in the ACA, but the argument is that the structure of the act requires a look-through of the plan at the AHP level to evaluate the actual employer that's participating to determine what market it's in. So the states are saying that these things are impermissible and the harm to them is the contamination of their individual and small group markets because you're going to see uh, adverse selection and you're going to see the healthy employers fly away to these AHP plans. And I think that, they're, that the lawsuit has created some uncertainty um, and it's going to, I think, delay uh, the full implementation of AHPs around the country. So Scott, I, you started to touch on this, but I want to just switch gears and talk a little bit more specifically to the broker audience. So. What are some key items for brokers to understand regarding this interplay of state and federal authority as it, as it pertains to association health plans? So, you know, essentially the federal authority allows them to create these plans, but it keeps into place the state regulation. Every AHP is a MIWA, a multi-employer welfare arrangement. And there's uh, specific legislation allowing the states to have oversight over MIWAs. And it divides into two categories, insured plans and self-insured plans. So on an insured plan, the states essentially retain their ability to regulate the carrier that's offering the coverage. So they're, they're regulating the coverage under their normal state regulation rules. They're, I don't think they're supposed to have any special rules that apply if they're offering to HPs, but they regulate the carrier and the plan that's offered. On the self-insured side, they have a much broader degree of authority. So they not only, so if an AHP is self-insuring, they not only have the ability to regulate the AHP as an insurer itself, but they can impose pretty much any requirement that's not at odds with ERISA. So for example, 
Some states have said that self-insured plans can only be put in place by AHPs if the self-insured plan existed prior to a date certain. There are several states that maintain requirements like that. Many, many states, in many, many states, my understanding is that the regulatory regime for self-insured plans essentially makes them impossible to do in those states. So I think that's the key thing to understand, that the federal authority is only the beginning, not the end. Now that lawsuit, the thing that I think is really interesting is I, I don't think, and Kate and I discussed this at, at some length before our, our podcast, I don't think the states have the ability under ERISA to override DOL's group size determination for HP. So when DOL says under ERISA, we're gonna treat an association health plan that has more than 50 participants as a large group plan, regardless of how the uh, underlying membership is constituted. I don't think the states, I think the states would be preempted from overriding that determination. They're not uh, inhibited from challenging the DOL determination based on the fact, as they've argued in the lawsuit, the DOL does not have the statutory authority uh, to promulgate that rule either under ERISA or because of the ACA requirements that came later. So I think the important thing to understand is we're still really stuck at the moment with a pretty Byzantine state regulatory oversight system for the HPs themselves. Okay, so practically speaking, if I'm the head of my local chamber of commerce and I wanted to create an association health plan to cover medical, dental, and vision benefits for different small businesses and contractors that are within my city, and I'm able to secure an insurance provider, do I need to notify the state? And then what are some of the key items that I need to comply with in setting up one of these plans inside my state? So um, you would have to notify the state because you're a MIWA, and so you'd have to register with the state and with the Department of Labor just to notify them that you've established this MIWA. But again, most of the regulatory oversight then is on the carrier that's providing the coverage to the HP in this scenario and not on the HP themselves. In terms of the key items that you're gonna to need to comply with, you're gonna to need to set up what would now be the requirements on the HP under the DOL rules. Uh, so the members are going to have to, to manage the day-to-day -day operations of the HP. And they're essentially gonna function as a board because you're gonna have an insurance company that's providing the coverage. But you're gonna to have to have individual participating employers, not the chamber itself, uh, directly participating in the management of that HP. You're going to have to have documentation in place showing that you satisfy the interest, the commonality of interest requirements set out under the DOL rules. Now, those are much lighter uh, than they were before they made these rule changes, but there's still that documentation obligation. Okay, thanks, Scott. And then you had mentioned that one of the pieces of this new regulation is that it eliminates a geographical restriction for these similar employers. So, for example, it allows a franchise of auto repair shops in multiple states to offer one big health plan. So, how do you see these interstate arrangements working? Poorly. 
so my favorite example on this is the National Restaurant Association in a, in a bit of odd timing because they actually rolled this out uh, before the proposed rules were finalized. But they put, into, they put into place a National Association Health Plan. Do you know how many options there are under the National Restaurant Association's National Association Health Plan for its members? No, how many? 256. Why are there 256? Because it's impossible under the current framework of state regulation to really set up an interstate plan. So really, the National Restaurant Association plan is 50 state plans. And within each plan, there are multiple options so that you can buy at different levels. But because of that state authority, on the self-insured side, it's almost impossible in most states to do a self-insured AHP, so you've eliminated that opportunity. On the insured plan side, that means that the plan, whatever carrier is providing the coverage, their plan has to be admitted and approved in each state in which it's offered, which means that it has to satisfy all the mandate obligations of the state. Normally in a RISA plan, if you think of a big employer, think of General Motors, they have facilities all over the country, they put an ERISA plan in place, they're not regulated and it's self-insured. That's not regulated at all under state law. So they are not bound at all by any state mandate. So that means they can have one set of, of benefits that they offer to all their employees and they can price it accordingly. Uh, but when you're outside of that framework, it's an insured plan, that means that each state's gonna have a different set of requirements that look a little different and it just becomes impossible to have an interstate plan. So I think it's a fiction that you're gonna be able to use that at least as the way that the law is currently situated. There is a coalition advocacy effort uh, that's, that's starting to ramp up, that's designed to, I think they're trying to do two things. One, they're trying to fix this on the federal level to maybe put a preemptive regime into place. They would maybe set some high standards. Indiana, for example, is renowned for having a very effective set of uh, MIWA self-insurance regulation standards that they have in place. Um, and they also, I think, are trying to harmonize uh, the regulatory requirements among neighboring states so that they can start to do, on a regional basis, some of the multi-state plans. I should note, and I haven't mentioned this yet, that historically, and our members will speak to this a lot, MIWAs have gotten a terrible reputation because before that MIWA statute was put into place elevating the state's ability to regulate uh, them, uh, there were a lot of downward spiraling MIWAs that went bankrupt. Uh, they were put together on a fly-by-night basis uh, by people who were very focused on their own profit from the plan and not so much on providing the underlying health insurance. And so they've developed a bad reputation and a lot of uh, what you see in terms of the regulatory approaches are efforts to try to ensure that if you have a multi-employer plan in place, you have enough guardrails that the, it'll be fiscally solvent and viable. Okay, thanks, Scott, for breaking that down. Um, I just want to switch gears and talk about how you think association health plans might impact some of the other markets. So one of the concerns with these plans is that they're going to, they're going to siphon healthy risk away from individual and small group market risk pools, um, which which could serve to exacerbate the more wobbly ACA individual marketplaces. Do you think that this is an earnest concern or do you think that's overblown? 
Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I think that to the extent that these are successful, it's probably not an overblown concern. I, I think it's probably a realistic concern. Uh, you can imagine um, if AHPs are robust enough that they could almost replace uh, these other two markets in some states. Uh, but I think it's going to depend a lot on how successful they are. And right now, it's hard for me to see this as being as successful as some are predicting, given the state-by-state -state nature of the plan base that you have to put into place. But I don't know. Just in connection with that idea, Avalier Health has predicted that about 4 million people are going to leave the individual and small market to enroll in association health plans over the next five years. What do you think about that? I think it's a hard thing to predict. I think at some level, I mean, first of all, it's highly dependent on the outcome of that lawsuit. And I'm not sure that I have a view on how that lawsuit will come out, but I think that some of the allegations that have been made by those attorneys general are, are serious, and they're gonna have to be taken seriously. And I, if I were gonna bet, they have a, a very decent chance of prevailing. So if that's true, um, then I think the entire framework goes away and the prediction's out the window. Even if they don't prevail, um, I think states are gonna do everything they can to impede the ability to put these in place. And so you could imagine years of litigation as you try to tamp that back. So five years, I think, is aggressive for any big expansion. Beyond that, I think it's going to depend a lot on how all the litigation works out. So just to wrap up, this rule is going to be implemented, implemented in stages. What are some key dates that brokers should be aware of? So we, we've already passed sort of the first milestone date, September 1st. And as of that date, any association, so you could create a new one or existing ones, but are now allowed to establish a fully insured association health plan utilizing the new rules. So uh, allowing them to include individual business owners without employees, allowing them to aggregate small businesses and create a large group, et cetera. Um, on January 1st of 2019, uh, trade associations that had existed, that had sponsored an HP on or before uh, the rules were published, uh, so last spring, they may establish a self-funded AHP under the new rules. So they'd be allowed to expand their membership base. They'd be allowed to aggregate and treat it as a large employer across and use those rating rules, et cetera. And then on April 1st, 2019, uh, so next spring, then any trade association, old or new, can use the new rules to establish a self-insured health plan. So those are the three key dates. And really right now, to break it down, anybody can do uh, a fully insured plan September 1st. Associations that had a plan into place already can uh, do a self-insured plan and open it up under the new rules. And as of April 1st, any, any trade association, old or new, with or without a plan before, can do a self-insured plan. Okay, thanks for breaking that down, Scott, and letting us know those different important dates to be aware of. The only thing I would add, and it goes a little bit to your market speculation, is 
because of the state-by-state -state regulatory regime that's still in place, I think from our vantage point, we've struggled to understand why this is going to be as important a tool as some people think it will be. And so it'll be interesting to see how that works its way through them in the marketplace. Real opportunity uh, under the rules is intrastate plans and expands the ability to, you know, it goes back to your Chamber of Commerce question. You know, if you have a Chamber of Commerce in, in Birmingham, Alabama, this does free them uh, to do a, a, a plan inside Alabama much more so than they could before the, these rules were put into place. All right. Well, thank you, Scott, for being here with me today. And thank you for listening to CouncilCast. You can listen more on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or SoundCloud. Please subscribe and leave us a review or rating to tell us how we're doing. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can find us at ciab.com, at the CIAB on Twitter, or you can email in at councilcast at ciab.com. See you next time.